Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with Hondo Gertz, and we're so excited to have Brian Schimpf with us today. Brian is a co-founder and CEO of Anderil Industries, and it was a big week for Anderil, so I'm excited to get into your most recent round, um, such a milestone. Um, but Brian previously was Director of Engineering at Palantir, so I know we've talked about Palantir quite a bit on our show, and two examples of disruptive tech companies breaking into the defense market. Uh, but Brian was also founder and lead of the Cornell University Autonomous and Vehicle Research Program, which is pretty cool, like to get into kind of stimulating talent and uh, academia's role in all of this as well. So thanks so much, Brian, for joining us. Great. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to chat today. So Brian, other than your substandard education at Cornell, since I'm a Lehigh guy, um, you know, you've had quite an interesting journey uh, getting to this point was uh, and getting involved in national security. I don't know if that was something that was of interest to you all along or where you got into it. Give us a little kind of uh, how did you get to be in here uh, background and uh, what's kind of driving you to be uh, somewhat fighting uphill against, uh, you know, the, the stream being a tech company trying to support DOD. So I uh, have been type of person that I've been writing code since I've been 12. I'm an engineer through and through. I love it. I love building things. I love building uh, interesting tech. So one school at Cornell did self-driving cars, and that was sponsored by DARPA. And that was, you know, kind of an interesting experience of how a U.S. government entity can really kick off a whole field, right? If you look back at it, nobody thought that was possible. And when you look at the progression of technology through that, it literally was not possible the first time they did it. You know, the first race they went through on DARPA Grand Challenge and the desert race, cars went maybe two miles, right? And it was, everyone was like, this is a failure. This is never going to work. Next time you had several teams finish, you know, something like a hundred mile desert race. You do it again a couple years later and you had, I think, something like six teams finish a four or five hour urban race, which is wildly harder than anything that had been done before. So in the period of about seven years, you went from a an industrial base, a, a research base that could not do even what is considered now a relatively simple thing to actually solving, uh, you know, at least at a prototype level, what was considered a very, very hard problem. Um, you know, and that, that, that was really inspiring, right? Like that was actually like amazing to see the progress in a space move so quickly when you got a lot of smart people just able to hack on a problem and just see what people could do. It was really impressive. Um, and so the, uh, from there, I ended up landing at Palantir. Uh, I was like, you know, 2007 period. Uh, I was sort of like pre, you know, when all the tech kind of collapsed. Uh, but for me, it was just so exciting to get into a Silicon Valley environment. And then the things that were so inspiring about it were you had all these incredibly hungry people that were sort of unlocked to just be able to drive and go and do something interesting. Uh, so it was just an incredible place. We, you know, I started there right out of school. I was very young, uh, ended up, you know, having some desire and aptitude to do management, 
uh, ended up running a lot of our forward deployed engineering work there and then ended up taking over uh, product overall across commercial and government work. And it was just an awesome journey. You know, I stayed there about 10 years and I think it is hard for people to anticipate the amount of learning that you cram into a relatively short tenure at a startup. You go through every level of scale. You have to reinvent every one of your structures, how you operate, how your organization works every time you double in size, which happens a lot at a startup. Uh, So just an incredible learning experience of not just how do you actually build these modern software and data products, um, but how you actually build a company. And in doing that, I ended up getting a lot of exposure to the mission side as well. So I worked a lot with the intelligence community, defense department, uh, and there is no group of people that is more passionate about what they do um, while also living, you know, operating in one of the most difficult environments to actually get things done. And so, like, there, the people who stay in defense love defense. And it is hard not to be infected by that degree of passion and drive for the mission. And so that, that was something that was just incredibly important to me. These problems matter. These people care. Uh, like, the, it, what you do really makes a difference. And then the engineer nerd in me loves the degree to which you have such a interesting, challenging set of problems. And DoD is, in a lot of ways, the ultimate early adopter on these events technologies, right? It is, it's not always fast. We always wish it could be better. We always wish they would take things sooner. But nobody else is seriously talking about putting autonomous systems into operational environments. Nobody else is really thinking about, like, how do I push the use of AI into these things? You know, again, I wish it was faster. We all do. But there, it is a massive behemoth that actually does uh, do these things. And, and I think um, it's on a panel where I think you were on it and Bob Work was there. And he said something that really stuck with me, which was the Defense Department, more than any other organization, has reinvented itself over its history. Like when you look back at how much it has changed and how fast it can repivot around these things, most companies just actually die. They don't change. Uh, the Defense Department has to, and it does. And it's not as fast as we want. But moving 2 million people to actually get around a new problem turns out to take a little bit of time. Um, so, it, you know, it's just a, a super exciting place to be. Um, and, you know, when we founded Andril, there was sort of no question. We are defense only. That is what we do. Uh, we are going to work on, you know, defense weapon systems. That is what we want to do. A lot of investors are like, hey, find commercial applications. It's really important to have a commercial angle. We're like, nope, we're not interested in that. We are a defense company. That is what we are working on. So uh, it's been a super exciting journey. We've been at it about five years now. Um, you know, it's been going very, very well, and we've been able to build and get fielded a lot of technology in that time, uh, which is, you know, that's our measure of success. Are we getting stuff out to the field? We don't care about prototypes. We don't care about any of this stuff. We just want to get stuff out to the field, and that's our success. What's it like as one of the first really significant companies or players venture-backed focus on defense only? We've had some players with the commercial, but interest and passion for defense, but Andrew is kind of unique in that sense. And I'm, I'm curious about boundaries to entry the mar- enter the market, but also going up against the traditional defense industrial base, which has pretty deep roots in the market. Yeah. So, you know, uh, part of our belief was there was this blend of um, how commercial industry has kind of evolved its thinking on how you develop, build, and deploy products, um, both on, you know, how do you utilize software in this, but then also how can you think about, you know, rapidly bringing things to market, getting prototypes and iterating early that the defense department was, was, was really in need of. So, you know, a lot of our belief was we could get to technology out there faster, and that would be an extremely welcome, you know, 
dimension to this, and that commercial industry could de-risk and absorb most of the technical risk on a lot of classes of products. So, you know, I think I don't think you're going to see a major change. Probably shouldn't uh, in terms of like how we build and buy aircraft carriers and bombers, and like those are very bespoke, very requirements-driven custom assets, and that's probably right you know we could argue about what could be better here and all of that but it's not going to get a whole lot different than what it is but there's a huge class of capabilities and you you really saw spacex prove this out where no one would have thought you know 20 years ago that you could have had a private company make space launch uh or put up the largest constellation of satellites um i think even people were doubting starlink was even physically possible and they went from operating zero satellites to operating the most by i think two orders of magnitude in 12 months right and so the 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 pace at which you've been able to see commercial industry can move fast in a different model on things that were historically only possible with the Defense Department's large capital investments, it is wild, right? It is very wild. And I think this is going to continue. So, you know, building nearly any type of autonomous or unmanned platform, I think you could largely move that to, hey, commercial industry, um, show me something you've got here and I'm going to be a buyer. Um, I'm not going to, you know, nickel and dime you with cost plus stuff. I'm just, we'll do it for a fixed price. You got a good product, we'll buy it. And we can reintroduce new ones every two, five years. Um, I think the same thing can be true for missiles and weapons. I think this would substantially change how we think about the supply base. If all of a sudden now your profit and loss was determined by how many can you sell and are you getting to market with the right concepts? I think that'll solve the innovation problem. You know, looking at like refreshing Stinger every 25 years seems to be the wrong model at this point. We can build a next generation Stinger in a very, very quick time frame. And if the DOD, you know, if commercial industry knew in five years, there's going to be another recompete and another buy and you can win if you build a better product at a better price, they would do it, right? It is not so much capital that they wouldn't do it. So I actually think there's a lot of these relatively straightforward, you know, kind of economic models, way you build, way you can sell into the government that apply way broader than, you know, kind of the, the things that are kind of nibbling at the edges on innovation, right? So I don't think anyone believes you're going to build software in the DoD the way you build a carrier. I think that is well proven to be a horrible idea, right? You know, we've had GPS OCX, like, dear God, let's not do this again. Um, But I, I think there's a huge array of capabilities that now this model can work for, that we're historically the province of just purely the defense primes. Um, so that, that's our belief. That's our thesis. And I think we've been starting to see that to be true. Um, and, you know, I think the other side of this is it's not just like how do you do all these innovative things with new ways of using software and uh, how do you, you know, take advantage of AI. That's all goodness, right? Like we should do that. That is no brainer. That is coming table stakes. You have to do that to new next generation systems. Uh, the interesting dimension now is going to really look at how do you do manufacturing and production in a totally new way. Um, so, you know, like this should look closer to Tesla. This, you know, there's a lot of interesting companies, you know, Hadrian, uh, Andrew Wilkie from um, who is the CEO of Amazon's consumer business is now going and looking at how does he build a modern manufacturing machine in the U.S. Like, there's a huge amount of emphasis on how do we really modernize U.S. production and manufacturing capacity, and the same thing is going to have to be true in the defense side. And so that's, like, another huge area we've started to focus on is what is production going to look like on this. So the reception's been very positive. You know, again, so the Defense Department, it's slow, takes its time, but I have not seen any closed doors in the, like, we're not interested in what you're doing. It's just a question of when and how can we actually buy it when we have all these other commitments that we've kind of locked ourselves into for a long time. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's an excellent point. I think I think sometimes technology 
companies or people interested in technology get enamored with the technology, not the use case that it enables. Uh, I had an old SOCOM commander who used to say, I don't need the most advanced technology, I just need the most useful. All right, and so I think this idea, you know, the, the DOD struggles with this huge embedded fixed infrastructure cost. Uh, and we got in this mindset that it's all has to be capital intensive. It has to take billions of dollars to start up. And there's certainly some elements of that. But I, I too, am really interested in how do you modernize what industry is, right? We think of industrial, but we think of it in World War II terms. Um, where do you think opportunities lie for the department to incentivize that? Um, how, how are you? You brought up a couple ideas. But if, if we really were to supercharge this, um, and really start thinking about we are on a fixed time. You know, time is a thing that's fixed. Everything else is variable. Um, what would you, what would the first three things you'd love the DOD to do to help facilitate that? So I, I think time is exactly the right way to think about this, which is if you constrain this to, um, the, you know, and, and the way this translates to is, is how you buy, right? So um, we're not going to take on a program with a five-year engineering timeline. Uh, and we're going to buy what works in the next 12 months. And then we're going to buy again in the next 12 months after that. And so I think if you start thinking about what are the areas where um, I, I can buy things closer to how I buy iPhones or computers, where I don't have a 30-year sustainment cost, where I, it actually is more economic to replace than to upgrade, um, that's a huge span of capabilities, right? Like anything under probably about $10 million is probably better just to replace than upgrade on the whole. Um, and, you know, that's a large number, but in DoD terms, that's not a large number. Um, and so the the reality is there's a there's if you get in this mindset of give me what you have today and then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to buy again in a year, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to buy again in a year, you will motivate a massive amount of industry response to this. Um, I think the other piece of this is on the contracting front. It's like, I think the, the presumption should be we are doing everything firm fixed price and we're not going to argue over, you know, margins and all these things. We're going to look at value for money when there's multiple people coming back and then allow companies. Again, this is how every other business in the world works. Allow companies to take that margin they make and reinvest in new capabilities that they actually want to bring forward and use their best ideas around it. Um, so I think if you just say like, hey, this is what we're buying and there's going to be opportunities every year for real consistent purchases, that is huge. But once you've locked it in and said, yep, this is the only thing we're buying for the next 10 years, the innovation in that area stops. Why would I continue to invest in that area when I know there's no chance that I'm going to get anything at scale? So changing that buying behavior is the single most important thing the DOD can do. It is a monopsonistic environment. There's one buyer. They control the market through how they buy. Um, I think a lot of these things with you know kind of strategic capital and stuff like that, they're, they're interesting if applied well, right? So there is no shortage of venture capital. I think this year there will be something like $11 billion of venture capital put into defense and aerospace companies. That is a lot of money. That is probably on the order of 20 times more than anyone is making on revenue in this space. Uh, but there is a lot of money flowing into this space. So there is no shortage of capital. Now, where I think these things can get interesting is, you know, either non-dilutive sources where you're, um, you know, capitalizing very defense-specific facilities, right? It's like it would be hard to get a loan from a bank on a weapons production facility. Not exactly a lot they can repo that for and sell for someone else. Um, so I think there's a lot of areas where there's this creative 
innovative financing strategies and investment strategies um, that can supercharge the like capital, like where there is capital intensive nature to building up and facilitating these things. You know, that's something that's very interesting to us where, you know, where can we kind of offset um, you know, spend the venture money on R&D and new product development and then find creative ways to do less expensive ways of financing things for all those facility needs. That's super interesting. Um, so I think there's a lot of really good levers the DOD can pull on this uh, from a policy perspective, how they spend money, how they allocate money. But the number one thing is like they literally did one thing, just buy, buy fast, buy in a predictable way and allow new entrants to come in with something better and be surprised um, because the life cycle and fielding costs are just, they're going down for a lot of these systems. It can be way cheaper to deploy these out. That's a topic that has come up on our show. It, the DOD, we get the sense they don't need to be a good investor, just be a good customer. And so that's a good opportunity for me to bring up the news from yesterday that Anderl announced the almost $1.5 billion investment in the company. So um, I'd love to give our listeners a sense of your take on investors' appetite. You, you mentioned it. There's a lot of interest in investing in defense-related technologies. Um, what's it been like for you in the fundraising process? And have you seen that change over the past few years, too, since you founded the company? Yeah. So when we started, it was very controversial what we were doing uh, on a lot of dimensions. So when we were started, we were working on border security. Um, and one of our founders was very notorious uh, in Silicon Valley. And we're uh, saying, going around saying we're going to work on weapon systems. This was crazy. Like we had to be very careful how we said it, who we were talking to, uh, you know, like very kind of explain why this was important and really justify it. And that tone has shifted 180 degrees. There's no debate that hard power deterrence actually matters at this point. There's no debate around this anymore. Ukraine has shifted that. Everyone who is, you know, you can choose not to engage in it. Uh, You can choose to say this is not an area I want to work in my career. But I would think it's probably the most uncontroversial position in America that we actually have to support our allies with hard power deterrence. Like, there is no question now. Um, And so the... That has been a huge shift, right? And I think the other side of this is um, we and others have had a fair bit of success in figuring out how do you structure a company? How do you sell? How do you get a business model to work? There has been positive wins coming from DOD. We have found people who are willing to take a chance on you know a new company and um, you know kind of really look at novel ways of doing this. Um, so there is real proven track record at this point that these things can move, can scale, and really go big. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's not going to be every company, right? It's like this is hard still. Uh, you know, these these markets are tough to break into, um, but the tone and attitude around this has shifted tremendously, right? And so I. I I think it is a, a sea change, and we've been you know a very lucky recipient of how that has played out. Um, so yeah, we've had a fantastic time with fundraising investors. All of our insider investors doubled down, uh, and then we brought on a number of new investors. So it's, it's, it was a, a real vote of confidence that things are going well. So uh, I, too, am seeing that shift of... I think for a while, you know, we we thought we could separate prosperity and security, and and I think that's shifting. So you're seeing a lot of companies now either trying to add a defense arm or trying to do defense as a start. And and one of the challenges I see is teaching technology-based companies how to sell to the government, and they want to sell the technology. The government's looking for solutions. What advice would you give? 
other startups that were, you know, the Palantirs of 20 years ago or the Andrews of five years ago. If, if you want to get into this market, you think you have unique technology, what's a lesson learned you'd share about how to best sell into the national security market? I think you put it exactly right. The government buys solutions and capabilities. They do not buy technology. When the government is saying we're going to be the integrator, uh, everyone who's listening to this knows what the track record is on that success rate. It is not great. And the government acknowledges this too. Anyone who's been in acquisition long enough just knows if the answer is government's going to integrate across these 10 vendors, try again, right? It's like it doesn't really work. Um, so the they need to buy capability. So, so your question is, if you have good technology, you have to find a way to sell it and package it as a solution. That could be working with, you know, channel partners, other vendors that do this, integrators, and that, that can work, but it can be slow, right? And so our belief from the beginning was there is, it is very hard to scale your business at the pace you want unless you control the narrative around what you are doing, why your technology enables such a different way of operating, and probably even more importantly, get that real-time feedback on how your technology does or doesn't solve these problems and adapt it. Because a lot of this is we have some idea of what's going to work, and then we just go and hey, we got this idea. It's just crazy. It's just going to work. And mostly people are like, that's crazy. It's not going to work. But here's the interesting parts of it. And then we hone it in, dial it, and find the parts that are actually really valuable nuggets. And if you don't have that cycle to be able to like rapidly adapt and you know, kind of develop these ideas with your customers, it's very hard. So I think for most companies who are looking to kind of add DoD as a market segment, probably going to work through a channel partner it's probably going to be slow and you know once you get there it's a fantastic customer they pay you forever like life is good but uh it does take time uh, but if you want to go fast if you want to really make a dent in this you've got to own that end-to-end relationship with your customers you got to drive it from their mission problems deeply understand those right like if you are not coming in and saying what is your actual problem what are you trying to solve how like what what is challenging for you and working back to how your technology can do it you're not you're not going to succeed you're not going to go fast uh, that is really what they need is is help thinking through how to solve this differently uh, not just responding to RFPs so we mentioned you're not taking on the commercial market um, but you're not just focused on the US government you have a pretty strong international business as well and something we talk about on our show often is the private sector is now navigating like this booming globalization push and now thinking about deglobalization. So which countries do we partner with, which are safe, which aren't? Can you give our listeners a take on your international strategy? Yeah, so so we have a certain advantage in that our international strategy is largely set by the U.S. government. It's called ITAR. Uh, so the um, you know so in a lot of ways the way we viewed it is we are fundamentally trying to align with U.S. foreign policy, and with U.S. foreign policy, there's the always allies, and then there's the allies in the right context, and there's the do not sell right, and it's um, and, and that that guides you pretty clearly right. There's not a lot of you know, kind of wiggle room on that. Um, so everything we're doing is kind of very in concert with that U.S. policy. And I think things like AUKUS have the potential to really accelerate a lot of this. Um, you know, the intelligence community figured this out a long time ago. They've got this Five Eyes Alliance. It's amazing, huge sharing. It's a fantastic setup. We need the same thing for defense. We need the same thing where it's, you know, kind of sharing of information with our key allies, bringing them on board, co-developing capabilities, because this is one of the U.S.'s biggest strengths is actually having allies that will fight with us, that will actually, like, you know, support us 
to have a more sophisticated approach to diplomacy and warfighting and all of this. So, so it's a huge part for us. It's strategically important for the U.S. It's strategically important for us. Um, we recently did um, uh, a deal with Australia to build extra-large underwater vehicles. Um, so these are going to be big, you know, school bus size vehicles. Like, they're, they're, they're going to be no joke. And we, the Australians have a real hunger to move out and do this. Now, they're smaller. They're more, you know, agile as a result. There's sort of less steps in the process. But, I mean, we went from conversation with them to four months later having a contract in place, and they're all in. And we're going to have first hauls in the water within 18 months of starting that contract. So it is a very fast timeline of getting these things out. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really exciting uh, really exciting group to work with. Uh, and part of it is they really want to have a piece where we're building out a real Australian presence. So we're putting engineering there, we're putting manufacturing there, we're working with the Australian industrial base on this. Uh, and I think this is the form this really has to take, right? So there's going to be a flavor of this for us, which is we're exporting our kit that's built here to allies and like, that's great. Um, and, and we should and we will and we absolutely will do that. Uh, but a big part that's interesting to us is how do we really pull these partner countries in in a first class way where we're building real capability with them in country with their systems as well as tying it in with the U.S capabilities um, and from how we think about the technology how we build it the software layers all of that has to tie all of it has to work together so that this is all kind of very compatible um, so it's it's been really exciting we're like we are doubling down on international as much as we can uh, and a lot of those countries have a lot of urgency to move out on solving some of these problems here um, but right now it's been you know kind of really fantastic relationship with Australia uh, great relationship with like the UK um, doing some great stuff there and looking to really expand you know kind of there in Europe broadly so Brian we're here at the Reagan Forum and uh, last year with some fanfare there number of the VCs kind of announced you know hey if you don't uh, get your act together DOD we're not sure the VCs are going to stay in this market I think your recent fundraise may may be an indicator but uh, you know, while I think there's a growing sense that you can't separate security and prosperity, that doesn't mean VCs are necessarily see the right market potential. They, they may understand why it's important, but they may not see the market potential. Do you view VCs understanding better now the, um, the ways to structure companies to sell into the government and, and this kind of hey, we're all going to leave in a year if, if something doesn't change. Do you, you sense we've kind of gotten past that, or is that still an issue we need to be thinking about? Uh, I think that VCs have a better understanding of what these composition of these companies look like. What do you need? And it's not just tech. It's actually government relations. It's sales. It's how do you build these as solutions. It's production. So I think there's a much better understanding of pattern matching on that, what's good there, um, and I think that is that is improved. In terms of, like, time running out kind of perspective, the reality with VC is, you know, it's like, what, what, what are my pressures? Like, what are the VCs put pressure on me? It's growth. It's top-line growth. That's it. That's the thing. And, um, you know, with that top-line growth, the that has to continue, right? And so there's... The numbers get large, and for all these companies, that is going to be the question. So, so you know, that has to continue to materialize. We've shown it's possible. We believe we're going to keep doing it. Uh, we believe we're getting really good reactions. But I think, I think kind of really the key is it's not in five years, you know, doing 
hey, here's here's some modest scale. Uh, it is very much about how do we get to production? How do we get things ramping? We've got a deep product pipeline, a lot of things that are coming out. And, you know, our bet is that these are going to get a warm response. We've been working with folks on how to buy and think about these capabilities differently. So I'm very optimistic. Obviously, the venture capitalists are as well. Um, but it is it is very important that the DoD kind of sees that through, uh, not just for us, but for a lot of these companies. And so, um, again, if they act as a good buyer, if they're actually showing that things that work do get there, that they're willing to make the hard decisions on what they sacrifice in other ways to go after these capabilities, that they'll accelerate these timelines. Um, this is very doable. I think like, and I think you will see when the dollars get there, this will be good for the primes as well. Like they will be incentivized to build in a different way. Once the, you know, once it is a material amount of money that moves the needle for them, they will move. They will see this as a real market and a way of operating. Uh, and I think it will be quite healthy for them. Uh, so I don't think this is about just like startups succeeding. This is about like reconfiguring the defense space writ large to respond to a different set of incentives that the department wants to see. And if that is bring me capability quickly and I will buy it, uh, that is something that I think you will get a huge amount of market reaction to, uh, you know, if it's if it's set up that way and if it plays out. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, we talked in, in one of our earlier podcasts of the fact that DOD has the largest R&D budget ever might be a fail. The DOD needs to be have the largest procurement budget ever uh, as a way to close all of these uh, these these elements. So, Brian, I'm going to pivot a little bit on and let's talk talent because you're not going to get expl- explosive growth in those kind of returns if you can't execute. How are you guys dealing with the you know these huge fundraises and all the expectations of growth? How are you thinking about talent? How are you attracting it? Uh, is it out there, uh, or is it you know you got to steal it for somebody else, or you know what's your sense on do we have the talent to do this at scale across the country? I kind of I kind of like break it into a couple of categories, um, like where is your talent pools coming from for a couple of key areas? For us, it's you know roughly broken into kind of software talent. Um, you know, kind of aerospace design, you know, kind of traditional defense design, subsea design talent, uh, and the manufacturing and production talent. And those are coming from three different industries where they are the best of this, right? So software is coming from Silicon Valley, big tech. The conditions have never been more favorable in our tenure as a company for hiring people from that world. Uh, 2023 is going to be a rough year for a lot of tech companies. They massively overgrew during COVID. And I think the rates that they were seeing, you know, kind of their business grow, they outpaced that with headcount growth. So they're in this very bloated, difficult position. So there is just not the same competition and fight for that for the next like year or two uh, that I think should be very, very talent, very, very positive. But even before that, we were having a fantastic time recruiting because there's a number of people who do want to work on this mission that value the impact and really want to solve these problems that is really motivating for them. Like we found people who are very diehard about what we're doing. You know, there's a reason we're out there saying we build weapon systems, we build defense technology. Like, we do not shy away from it. Like, this is something we are extremely aggressive about talking about, and that is to make it very clear to people, like, it's what we do. You're here for the mission. This is a serious mission. And don't come if you are not committed to this mission. This is not a two-year stop on your career. This is a serious commitment to what what national security is. And this is like, you're working in defense. Uh, So we've had a fantastic time recruiting in that. um, Just 
from the attraction of the mission. Um, but that's probably been the most competitive area for us historically. The production side, I think, is also largely going to come from um, modern manufacturing companies. It's going to come from the Teslas and the SpaceXs and, and you know, kind of modern automotive, um, modern contract manufacturing. Like, these are the areas that are going to think about how do we apply, you know, kind of really modern digital approaches to this, really think about automation in the factories, how do we have very reconfigurable production lines that can scale to all sorts of things we need to do. Like, that's the type of stuff that I think is going to be a very different way of thinking about production than has historically been done, which is very much a design for automation and design for manufacturing question. How do I minimize the complexity of this and make this IKEA simple? And that is a very, you know, kind of different approach than we've seen in the defense space, where it is much more sort of like high skill tradesmen historically on a lot of these things, which is great, but is hurting us right now. It's killing us. We can't keep those people trained and employed, and that's wrecking the shipyards and all these things. So thinking about, like, for these lower cost, simpler assemblies, how can we make this as dead simple as possible? And that's going to come from a lot of these modern commercial worlds. And then finally, on kind of that design and advanced, you know, kind of uh, hardware front, um, that has largely been defense space, right? And that has been where we're attracting people there are folks who are looking to build things in a much faster pace who are looking to work on a lot of different systems uh, and you know for all but the most seasoned people a lot of these companies they might get to work on one or two aircraft in their career you know you come work with us you might get that in your first year right and so the um it's a very different pace and way of operating, and that's been a real attraction to it. And and the other piece of this is we're trying to stay as lean as possible. Um, you know, this is is something we've been very successful at of getting you know very small, efficient teams able to crank through and get these things to go. And think about how we were building in a very you know kind of component driven way. You know, a lot of what made Gunkwork so successful was when they made the F one seventeen. They didn't invent all that much. That's a great scenario. They had to invent the stealth pieces, the, you know, all the key, you know, um, uh, aero performance design and all these things, but flight controls, landing gear, all this stuff, just take it, take what works. Uh, so we're trying to think in a similar way of how can, you know, if duty needs a variety and, and, and a constant refresh of these systems, how can you make that as cheap and simple as possible? Um, and we get folks who are really excited about that. So, you know, it's, it's a different way of thinking. We're trying to kind of pull laterally from all these different industries who have really thought about these problems in novel ways and pull them together and kind of take fresh looks at a lot of these aspects. Uh, so it's not just coming from defense. It's pulling in folks from everywhere. But we do need those defense experience people. There's a way, there's a knowledge, there's a, there's a set of concerns on this. And then we hire a lot of vets. I think we're like 25% vets. So we have people that really know what these systems are going to be used for, how they would fight with them, what they would use them for. It's, 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 it's a huge, huge benefit to us. Now, I was going to ask about the economic outlook and as a business leader, how you're thinking about it. But what I heard you say is you're keeping the team as lean as possible, but you're not having trouble with talent and recruiting like some big tech players are. And the government's a great customer in, in an economic downturn. And I think you're seeing that and kind of well positioned to, to move with that. So I'm going to ask about something else instead, which is uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine. I think I saw some of your colleagues were out there pretty quickly on the ground. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how Anderol reacted to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the initial approach was like, you know, what can we get out there now that that's going to really move the needle? And, and to be honest, I think a lot of our stuff was in product pipeline. We had a couple of capabilities we thought could move the needle, try to get those out there quick. And 
you know, at first we fell on our face with like the EW environment and how these things work. We've come back, done a ton of work to improve these things, actually get, you know, kind of a refresh to this, figure out what they really need, try to listen. Um, and we're really trying to drive, you know, kind of a, a new engagement on how you how you actually partner with these countries to help them figure out what works. I mean, the Ukrainians are a huge challenge. They're fighting every day. They have every vendor in the world saying, my stuff works, just take my stuff, you know, the U.S. will pay the bill. And they say, oh, it didn't work. And then they come back with the U.S. timelines on, you know, oh, it'll take two years and $50 million and I'll modify it. And it's like, it is wartime. That is not an acceptable answer. And so we don't want to do that. We're not going to waste their time. And so anything we're going to show up with, we want to stand by and actually be able to modify it, enhance it, and get it dialed in for their mission needs. So that's, that's really what we've been, you know, kind of focusing on is, is we're not going to waste their time. We want to get kit that works. Um, and in the U.S. side, I, I feel for a lot as well, where you've got kind of like these, you know, defense coordination pieces and export coordination pieces and they don't know what kit works or not they just kind of go with like the brand name things and you know find the winners there and it's it is a really hard problem to solve of how do i know what's going to work test it out quickly and if it doesn't work get it out of there and get something else in or improve it um so you know for us this is very much like you know we want to it's the type of thing the company is built for but if we're going to do this we're going to commit and figure out how we can actually deploy with them improve it and dial it in and that's that's our goal it's like what can we learn here as well as help them be effective um so we're 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 quite a ways along on that um but yeah a lot more to come there so we uh, we joked a little bit at the start uh, of your cornell versus uh, lehigh heritage what's your sense or what's what's your experience either in the academic setting working with government or now as we're kind of shifting to the future industrial base where how does academic and how do these academic institutions best play as we shift to this kind of new age industrial place? Where's your part? Is it the same? Is it different? What, what would your take be? You know, if you were to go into, you know, so I studied uh, industrial engineering and there was very little industrial engineering in the industrial engineering curriculum. It was all um, kind of operations research, financial math, like, you know, kind of optimization things. So it was kind of this like weird finance degree, like applied math finance thing. Uh, but I went out of my way to take classes on supply chain and inventory management and all these things. And there was not a lot going on at the time on this. So if you were going into an MBA program, a business program, any of these things, you said you did manufacturing, that would be the lamest thing, uh, like in the last 20 years. Like, nobody would care. Compare that with China. That is a great career. That is an extremely successful area, and a lot of high-talent people are going into this. Um, I've seen some really promising turns on this. MIT is looking at, you know, how do they invest in this from the business school on down of, you know, looking at kind of advanced manufacturing and how can they kind of have manufacturing executive programs. Like, I think there's an awakening that this actually really matters. Um, so finding these places where uh, you can actually look at becoming centers of excellence on how to do these advanced technologies, what the sort of business models look like, you know, modern, like real theory and study on how this is going to work for America. Because the answer is not going to be copying China. The answer will not be that. It will be an, an innovation approach. It will be, we have new technology, we're doing things differently, we're doing things better. That is the only way the American system will work. We're not going to pay people at Chinese labor rates. We are not going to win that way. So the key has to be a technical kind of business approach of how you're going to innovate in the manufacturing world. There's a ton of things academia can do on this. Um, really looking at studying where are their centers of excellence in the U.S., 
what methods are really working? How can you actually approach this from like a commercial-based perspective? I think one of the really interesting questions is there's a large U.S. commercial manufacturing, contract manufacturing base. How can the DoD better utilize that? Like the DOD will be 5% of their capacity. That is perfect because that means in wartime, there is a lot of excess capacity. And these guys have the volume of capital flows and, you know, kind of margin coming in to constantly be in reinvesting in the best processes, the best techniques, all these things. So I think there's a way of reimagining both then on the defense side, how we build and what these technologies look like to best take advantage of that commercial capacity that does exist, uh, both with the U.S. and with allies, because um, that, that has to be part of the answer, right? There's always going to be defensive specific components to this. They're not going to make solid rocket motors. They're not going to make warheads. That's not what they're going to do. They're not grinding germanium domes, but they can do nearly everything else. Uh, and that's something we really have to lean into the commercial base on. And I think academia has a huge role to play in that and thinking about that problem. How can we structure it and really pulling up great leaders that can think this way? Well, Brian, one thing you said that really stood out to me was your optimism about DOD's evolution here and kind of looking at the history of that, which sometimes we've heard that the private sector is actually doing it better, but you're right, they'll fail. So we don't see those long stories of um, not evolving in the private sector. So I think that was an awesome message. And then also just hearing about your experience with investors and kind of going against the odds on that front. And now you're probably kind of fighting them off because of um, how well Andrew is doing now. And, and I think proving out that model is going to stimulate other founders to follow in your footsteps. So thanks for taking the time to tell your story today. Thank you very much. I am extremely optimistic. You know, when we started this, I was not sure this was going to be possible, but now I'm convinced that the Department of Defense is serious on this. It will take time. Uh, but I think the sense of urgency and need to win has motivated people in a way I haven't seen before. So I am very optimistic and I know this is going to work at this point. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.